Welcome to Getting Legal With It, a podcast for Colorado young lawyers by Colorado young lawyers. I'm your host, Kevin Cheney. For those listening to us for the first time, I'm a personal injury and criminal defense lawyer here in Colorado. I graduated from the University of Colorado Law School in 2014 and founded my practice, Cheney Galuzzi and Howard LLC, a short time later. I'm a member of the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association, where I serve on its board, executive committee, and legislative committee. I also serve on the Colorado Bar Association's Board of Governors, the CBA Executive Committee, and the CBA Young Lawyers Division Executive Council. Finally, I'm also a member of the Colorado Criminal Defense Bar Association. If you're interested in learning more about any of these wonderful organizations, please feel free to shoot me an email at kevin at cghlawfirm.com. This podcast is created and sponsored by the Colorado Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Our goal with this podcast is to bring you bi-weekly episodes with information that is both fun and informative for young lawyers. We have some awesome guests lined up and we are just getting started. And with that, uh, let's jump right in. I'm really excited uh, for our guest today, uh, one of my friends and actually my current landlord, uh, Siddhartha Rathod. Uh, Siddhartha is a partner at Rathod Muhammad Bai, whose practice areas include civil rights, employment law, and physical abuse of student cases. Uh, Siddhartha has been a faculty member for the National Institute of Trial Advocacy since 2011 and is an adjunct faculty at the University of Colorado School of Law, also my alma mater, Go Buffs. Um, so uh, welcome to the podcast, Siddhartha. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, uh, you know, I, you got such an interesting practice area and have been part of so many, uh, you know, cases that have kind of been in the media um, and really kind of shaped uh, a lot of the criminal justice reform that we're seeing here. So really excited to uh, chat with you today. But before we get to um, all that, let's uh, introduce you to our, our listeners and learn a little bit more about you. So um, why don't we just kind of start off with where did you go to college and law school? Give us the, you know, kind of few minute bio here. I went to Miami University in Oxford, Ohio for undergrad. I then went to the United States Marine Corps. Uh, I was on active duty from 99 through 04. Uh, After that, I I came out to Colorado where I went to uh, law school at CU Law. And did you kind of always know you wanted to be a lawyer or tell us a little bit about your journey? How did you go from, you know, Ohio to the Marine Corps to going to law school? You know, I didn't know a lot of lawyers uh, when I was younger. In fact, uh, probably before the Marine Corps, I probably had met one lawyer in my uh, entire (laughs) life. So, uh, you know, a different path. My parents always said, you know, you argue with us so much (laughs) that uh, you'd make a good lawyer, you know, not knowing what lawyers do, really. (laughs) Mine told me the same thing. (laughs) And uh, and so uh, after the Marine Corps, I uh, went to law school. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I kind of uh, thought I was going to go in and do a JD MBA, uh, realized I didn't want to be in school that long. Uh, then I thought I'd go to big law. Uh, I went to, did my first summer at a big national law firm. Uh, you know, I was, it was a great experience. I made more money that summer than I did my first year <laughs> of working as a lawyer. Um, and, uh, but I realized it wasn't for me. Uh, then I tried, you know, some different things, and uh, I finally came and uh, found a love of uh, uh, being a public defender, and that's where I started my career as a public defender. Awesome. Was there a, a moment, I guess, in the Marine Corps when you were like, you know what, I'm going to go to law school, or was there somebody that you met, or how did kind of law school get on your radar? 
You know, I'd always thought about it, and I thought about it in undergrad. Um, I actually took the LSAT uh, in my final year of undergrad, and uh, back then I it, it was only good for three years, so I assumed it wouldn't be good when I got out of the Marine Corps. Uh, but then they changed the rules, and I was grandfathered in. And oh, great! So I just applied, and, and the rest here is I history. Am. The rest yeah. is history. That's awesome. Um, did you know when you went to law school, so it sounds like you did big law for a little bit, found out that and that kind of wasn't for you. Did you know you wanted to do something in the courtroom, like some type of litigation when you first went there? So, you know, I think I have a non-traditional background, uh, and, uh, accessory for lawyers. And so, you know, I didn't really know, I didn't really know exactly, you know, what lawyers did. And, you know, I, uh, really credit Anne England uh, at CU Law. She's the best. Um, you know, I did the uh, clinic with her in my third year, and I just kind of fell in love with it. Yeah, uh, I can't say enough uh, positive things about Anne England. She also uh, was so instrumental, I think, in where I am. I'll never forget, I was a 2L, and I, I started the clinic. Um, and that very first day, she passed out um, a bunch of files to each of us, and we're like, all right, these are your cases. Um, don't screw it up or they're going to jail. And she was like, good luck. And obviously she gave us way more instruction than that. But I remember trying my first case with her. She also was our mock trial coach. And um, such a, it's, it's crazy just how certain individuals can just have such an impact, you know, on your career. And I definitely would put her in that category. Uh, Anne's amazing. We both got to see law at the same time. Um, and uh, it was, uh, you know, really fortuitous for me and shaped my career. Great. Um, so I think you said that you uh, first became a public defender kind of on graduation. Um, how long did you stay there and, and kind of what was that experience like? I, I loved being a public defender. I was a PD for a little over three years and it was amazing. Uh, for me, I just got tired of seeing my clients uh, continually get hurt by the system. You know, we could only represent them on the criminal side. So the worse they got beaten by the police, the more seriously they got charged. You know, someone would, uh, their car would be illegally impounded and they'd lose their job and we'd suppress the, you know, impounding or search of their vehicle and the case would get thrown out. But then the, you know, Denver would, you know, charge them $50 a day for their car. And they're like, you owe us $5,000. And they're like, my car's only worth $1,000 and I lost my job. You know, and there's, so there's no way to help them on that side. And while the PDs are doing an amazing job day in and day out in the trenches, I wanted to have a impact on the civil side. And I think it's really important that you bring that up because I think that a lot of people who don't have any experience in the criminal justice system think, hey, you know, you were charged with a crime. Um, you know, you ended up either being found not guilty or the the, tra the charges were thrown out um, on because of some evidence issue or because of misconduct. Um, and, you know, the system worked, basically. Forgetting that that individual may have spent, you know, thousands of dollars on an attorney if they hired one privately. Uh, or like you said, they may have lost their job. They may have lost their car. Um, if it's a domestic violence case, they may have been forced to move out of their home. Um, you know, it can have all of these massive impacts on their life. And then at the end, it's basically like the government's like, oh, our bad. You know, sorry, go ahead and move on with your life now like it never happened. Even if you are found guilty, it doesn't mean you are. Uh, but also, routinely nowadays, the punishments don't fit the crime. The, the consequences don't fit the crime. We're 
over incarcerating where it's an incarceration of those with mental health, those with substance abuse, and it is simpler for our society to simply lock them up and forget about these individuals. And unfortunately, it has a greater effect on people who look like me. The black and brown community are disproportionately represented in the criminal justice system, in jails, in prison, and the system is broken. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think we got a really good example of that recently in Colorado. And Colorado, for its credit, has 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 done some criminal justice reform. We have a lot more to go, a lot more to do, um, but we are moving in the right direction. But just recently, um, we saw it with the I-70 case where a, um, you know, a, a young, poor brown person was driving a truck uh, that probably wasn't properly maintained by his company. Um, and you know, probably didn't have a ton of training. Uh, and he obviously made some mistakes. I mean, a jury jury found him guilty only to be sentenced to 110 years in prison for what was ultimately an accident. And, um, you know, recently the governor Polis commuted that down to 10 years, but I think that was a, a wake up call for a lot of people that don't necessarily pay attention to this stuff where you're just like looking at it and you're like, Oh my gosh, like how can someone get the same punishment for accidentally hurting someone with a truck, it would have been the exact same outcome had he purposefully drove it in there, like had he tried to kill people. You know, I think Alexis King, the Jefferson County District Attorney, is one of the most progressive district attorneys in our state. I think she would have uh, rectified that situation, um, and she was in the process of doing that. So, you know, I'm glad the governor decided to – you know, take action as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, you know, there are, as you said, Colorado is a moving in the direction of being a very progressive state. And when we look at district attorneys like Alexis King, Michael Doherty, they are the ones who are moving our state in that progressive, uh, in that progressive way. It was, it is shocking, you know, for years, uh, we, we never saw a district attorney basically testify on behalf of a criminal justice reform bill. It was pretty much uniform opposition, uh, regardless of party. And I think uh, last session, um, we, we really started to see a change. It's not all of them, but there are more and more district attorneys who are like, you know, these uh, large sentences or, you know, these, these harsh laws that we have aren't necessarily making us safer. You know, they're not necessarily protecting the community. And then sometimes, like you said, like if we take an individual and charge them with a crime and that person loses their job or loses their car or loses their home or loses all of it, that doesn't benefit anyone. You know, that doesn't make our community any safer. It doesn't make crime less likely to occur. Uh, and so I do think that we've kind of begun to see some of these more, um, you know, holistic, uh, looking at it from a holistic angle and saying, you know, how can we change this? You know, how can, you know, we become less harsh, but also you know, start focusing on the actual things that may prevent this from occurring in the first place. Absolutely. And I think we often look at things as an us and them. We look at it in a those people charged with or convicted of crimes, you know, in the rest of society. Or we look at it as a public defender versus district attorney type um, atmosphere when, uh, yes, it's an adversarial system, uh, but oftentimes we do need progressive individuals and we do need to be working with, you know, the whole community. Uh, and we need, we need progressive DAs out there who are willing to say, Hey, you know what, maybe this wasn't the right outcome. Let's, let's change that. And I think we have that with 
uh, Alexis King. And I think we have that with Michael Doherty and some others out there. Uh, but I think we need a lot more of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that was a really important point um, is is not dehumanizing individuals. You know, and I think uh, Brian Stevenson, I think, said it best when we are all more than the worst thing that we've ever done. You know, maybe the worst thing you have you've ever done isn't, you know, some capital crime. But you certainly wouldn't want to be judged on how you were on your worst day and the worst and the thing that you ever did. And 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 it's so easy to punish people when they're when they're othered. You know, when oh, this person is a thief, this person is a murderer, this person is a, a violent individual, um, and, and you basically strip them of their humanity. And that often leads to these really disparate outcomes when we, when we can really try to focus on these people and be like, these are human beings. They may have done something wrong. And even as someone who's very pro-reform, you know, we can still say, look, this action was wrong or this action harmed people. But we, we also need to recognize that they're a human being. You know, they have life experiences. Well, you know, there's a lot, lot more complicated than just being like, this is what they did. So, you know, let's lock them up and throw away the key. Yeah, we've all made mistakes, including myself. And we all wish we could go back and change decisions and, uh, you know, and make different choices here and there. I think the uh, question is, what do we do moving forward and how, right. how do we uh, make change moving forward. Yeah. And we, we could have had a, a whole conversation just on, you know, potential changes in criminal justice reform, but I want to kind of pivot to our, our, uh, main topic for today. Um, so, uh, it looks, sounds like you were, you were doing the public defender thing and, and you saw all of this in- injustice and you got kind of inspired to, Hey, maybe let's go on offense. You know, let's start, let's start trying to hold these government actors, uh, whether that's an entity or an individual accountable, um, for some of this thing. Uh, so, uh, how did you kind of get your start in, in civil rights law and this kind of, uh, um, you know, holding these kind of bad actors accountable? So I uh, went to a boutique civil rights firm and then 10 years ago, my business partner, Kusair Muhammad Bai, and I started Rathad Muhammad Bai, and we've just slowly grown that firm, um, you know, each year we're now 12 attorneys. Uh, and then staff, and I think we'll be by the end of this month. We'll be thirteen attorneys. Wow, wow, good for you guys. What is the you know a, a day in the life? I think that when a lot of people dream of going to law school, um, you know, a lot of them dream of kind of working for the ACLU or working for a civil rights law. I mean, it's a really uh, attractive area of law. What is the day to day life um, of a, a civil rights attorney? Well, before I answer that, you, you know, I think that's absolutely correct. A lot of people come to law school wanting to do civil rights. In fact, I've taught a presentation a number of times at CU and DU entitled uh, Why Everyone Comes to Law School Wanting to Do Civil Rights But No One Does. Right. Um, yeah. That's a whole different category. <laughs> um, you know, entries to barrier, cost, yeah. legal knowledge, things like that. Uh, but what's a day in the life of a civil rights attorney? It's every day is different. Um, you know, you're working on cases, whether it's a police shooting or a, you know, abuse in school or flying out and representing collegiate athletes on the East Coast or uh, an employment case. So it's it's a broad area. You know, we did the Wyoming marriage equality case. Mm. Um, you know, we've you know, it's kind of whatever we are passionate about and want to work on, you know, the firm, we get to work on it. And that's what's so exciting. Uh, and, and are you guys um, 
you know, obviously probably compared to a public defender, you are not in the courtroom as much as I'm assuming you were back in your PD days. Um, but is it a, is it a lot of writing? Is it a lot of courtroom work? Is it a lot of meeting with clients or kind of a combination of all three? It's a little bit of everything, but I think, uh, if you want to do civil rights, you got to become a strong writer. Okay. Um, you know, writing is key. Uh, yes. Uh, we are in the courtroom a lot. no. Not like I was when I was a public defender, which was <laughs> nobody is no, yeah <laughs> four to five days a week yeah um, but you're you're litigating a lot so it's a lot of depositions uh, you know a lot of motions and advocacy that way a lot of client meetings witness interviews you know sleuthing and being your own detective or hiring private investigators to do witness interviews but a lot of times it's better for the attorneys. Uh, in the office to do that work themselves because you get a mm-hmm. feel of who the witness is. Right. Um, and then uh, there's a lot of writing. Uh, when you want to sue the government, it is complex. Uh, when you go to go after big companies for wrongs, it is complex. So holding you know municipalities and companies accountable is a, a difficult area of the law, and you have to really be able to shine in writing because that's how we convey as lawyers the majority of what we do it's the oral argument when we get to court on a on a motions issue is only secondary to the writing the judge is mainly reading and then making their decision right they're just supplementing it with hey i have a question about this or that if your writing is not good you are not going to win regardless of how good your oral advocacy is, and you're not going to get to trial. So it doesn't matter how great of a trial attorney you are. And I love trials. I've been teaching trial advocacy at CU Law uh, and at NIDA for seven years at CU Law and 11 years at NIDA, and I love it. I love being in trial and doing trials, but you can't get there if you can't write. And and that seems to be a... uh... Uh, especially relevant for civil rights cases because there's so many avenues where the corporation or the government can kind of win everything from qualified immunity to, um, you know, different motions practices. So uh, I think it's really important for people to understand, you know, how important writing is. And you are not the first guest to um, really hone that in. I know they hone that in at the law schools. And, you know, as a law student, you know, I remember listening and being like, yeah, you know, I know writing is important, but like, I'm going to do all of my work in the courtroom. And then you get to actual the actual practice of law. And you're like, man, they were right. Like writing is everything. And if you can't write well and you can't get your day in court, if you can't get to the jury because you're losing on either a motion for summary judgment or all of these different ways that our, our cases can be kicked, um, you know, you can be the greatest speaker in the world, you know, the next Jerry Spence, and it's not going to matter. You know, it's not going to, it's not going to help your clients. Absolutely. And I think what people don't recognize with civil rights, so police brutality, a jail death, a you know, officer shooting type case or a officer involved death type case. It's our firm up against, on average, five to seven other firms. So we're not one-on-one. We are us versus teams of attorneys. You know, on the other side, we'll routinely have, you know, seven to 15 opposing counsel. Wow. Because each defendant gets its own firm. Each firm staffs the case with one to three attorneys. Then you have the municipality, so the city attorney's office, right? Um, on top of that. So it is a it is immense the 
the amount you have to litigate against. And that again is shown in your writing. Right. Um, so we've obviously talked about how writing is, is just so crucial. Um, what other things, if there's a law student listening who is passionate about civil rights, um, what kind of things uh, does your firm look for? Do you know that other kind of civil rights firms look for? I mean, are, are, are they looking for, you know, order of the coif top grades? Are they looking for people who have volunteered for nonprofits and have kind of showed their activist side and kind of their passion for it? Um, are there specific classes that you recommend um, them taking that, you know, maybe helpful? Um, what, what kind of stuff can a law student do who's interested in, in civil rights law? So first, I mean, I think a demonstration you're passionate about it is, is key. And that can be in volunteer work, in the organizations you're part of, just by being out there in the community. Um, my entire firm is routinely, you know, at events and attending events, and we try to, you know, be out there in the community. And so, you know, the students who are passionate about it uh, are out there and they, they want to meet attorneys who do this area. They are volunteering for different organizations, uh, but it's everything. Um, you, you need to be a strong writer. You need to be a strong advocate. You need to be passionate about it. And you shouldn't give up just because you can't come out of law school and find a job at Rathad Mahamabai or one of the other few boutique firms or the ACLU uh, you know, there are other opportunities. Just keep your eye on the prize. Go be a public defender and become a badass trial attorney, but write at the same time. Mm -hmm. Volunteer to do all the county court appellate briefs so you become a better writer. You know, go uh, to Colorado Legal Services. That's civil rights work. That's what they're doing there, you know, day in and day out. So, you know, you know cut your teeth where you can, uh, and then stay part of the community and then transfer into our firm. You know? Right. You know, so if you can't graduate and get that federal clerkship, which isn't a requirement, but it's great. It makes you a better writer. Right. Things like that. Um, there are other ways and other avenues to getting into civil rights. Um, you know, I think, as you mentioned, there's there's not that many firms, um, you know, that in this in this area, is it fairly competitive? I mean, do you guys get a lot of applicants, you know, when you guys do have job openings? I think you mentioned that you're going to be hiring a new attorney here soon. Um, is it is it relatively competitive? I mean, do you guys get a lot of people interested in, in kind of working for your firm? Yeah. You know, when we put a uh, ad out there, you know, we get hundreds of applicants. Wow. That said, we don't put ads out anymore. You know, people tend to come to us. They tend to, they find us. They, you know, they get an introduction. They come to coffee. They, mm -hmm. you know, start attending events. We see them in the community and we then go after them. Um, wow. I would say the last number of hires, um, you know, four of the five last hires, we have gone after them. You know, there have been, you know, you know, individuals with really interesting and unique backgrounds that, you know, met somebody in our firm or, you know, kind of put a bug in someone's ear right. that they're interested in, you know, and we've kind of, um, you know, hired that way. We don't hire on need. Uh, I think if you're hiring when you need an attorney, uh, you're behind the power curve. Yeah. You know, you're, it takes a year to get an attorney up to speed. Right. Uh, right. We hire on talent. And that talent is 
could be in writing, it could be in oral advocacy, it could be in diversity of background, it could be in a hundred different areas uh, that we find impressive. And, you know, timing lines up and things work out sometimes. I think that's a really great thing. And, you know, I know we're going to talk a little bit about running your own law firm later, but that's really good advice. I think that, you know, if you don't necessarily always want to hire on on need or if you can, you know, hopefully never have to do that. Um, and rather, you know, if you see somebody who is who is uh, talented and, and has the skills and you think is going to make your firm better, you know, don't lose out. You know, don't don't wait. Don't assume that, you know, they're still going to be there, um, you know, when you need them. Um, before we get to kind of discussing a little bit about running your own firm, is there um, any exciting cases uh, that you've been working on or maybe a case that you're most proud of that your firm has worked on recently um, that, you know, you kind of want to talk about today? I know you guys uh, just a quick Google search. You guys just have so many uh, really important cases and, um, you know, really holding uh, the feet to uh, or the feet to the fire of uh, some of our uh, governmental entities here in Colorado. Um, but is there anyone that kind of stand out that you'd like to chat about today? You know, I think all the cases are unique, you know, whether, whether it's, uh, you know, we were sent the mother of Elijah McClain, uh, whether it's Kyle Vincent, who was brutally beaten, you know, by uh, Aurora, whether it's uh, Johnny Hurley, who was the hero in Arvada, who was then shot and killed. Um, you know, those cases are all, you know, high publicity and they're, they're meaningful because with that publicity, you can make change. But even the day-to-day -day employment cases that we, we handle or, you know, the LGBT student who's being bullied at school um, type case that no one hears about. Right. But where we can make changes in that school, where we can greatly affect the quality of life of that student or that employee, uh, we can you know, be there in their difficult times. Those are meaningful for me that that ability to be there for someone who is struggling. Uh, and it's difficult. It's, it's emotionally taxing. We talk a lot in our right. office about secondary trauma Yeah, and uh, making sure our attorneys are all aware about it. And, you know, if I catch myself snipping at my kids, you know, uh -huh. I'm thinking about, Hey, what's going on? And, you know, did I just attend an autopsy of a, of a juvenile? Did I, am I, you know, overstressed about, you know, this case or, you know, this is the third funeral I attended, you know, this, this year, you know, so, uh, but it's meaningful when I get to be there for that family. And I think we go above and beyond um, right. the law. Uh, and I think you have to, if you're going to do these type of cases, you're going to be involved in these people's lives. It doesn't end when the case ends and it doesn't begin when you file a pleading. You're, if you're going to take these cases on, you're, you've got to be involved in their lives to the, to the degree they want you to be. And you have to be there for them. You have to accept that call, you know, or, you know, or call them back first thing in the morning, you know, right. and, and be responsive and make sure that it's not about you, about your own publicity or your own future as a, as a lawyer, but it's rather about them uh, and their needs. And what does that client need from you? And are you serving the client? I really look at ourselves as a service law firm. We serve our clients, every lawyer, every staff member, um, everybody in our office, we serve our clients. And I think if you do that 
every case can become meaningful. I, I think you, you said something that I, I think I want to uh, touch on, um, you know, t- uh, talking about affecting change and kind of, you know, changing the systems or, or whatever happened to um, that led to these terrible events happening. Is that something that you guys can often push for in, in, in a settlement agreement and say, hey, you know, compensation is nice. Obviously there is a monetary component, but you know, we want to see this policy change. We want to see, you know, this training implemented, or we want to see, you know, this type of stuff prohibited going forward. Is that something that in your guys' settlement discussions that you guys are able to push for and say, you know, look, money's great, but this is what we really want. This is what matters. Absolutely. And every single one of our clients, we won't take their case if all they want is money. They, and, and I've never had a client who has told me that they don't want change. They don't want another mother to be sitting there when, you know, their son has died or their daughter was shot. Uh, They want to make sure that the next family isn't in their shoes. And same in employment law. They want, it's not just about the money. They want to make sure, hey, what changes did the, you know, employer, the hospital, the, you know, the municipality do to uh, affect change in this situation. Um, and you don't always get it. Right, okay? right. You know, but it's uh, it's important for every single one of our clients, and uh, it's something that we do in pretty much all our cases. That, that's really great, man. I mean, you, you know, because, you know, obviously a, a large monetary judgment can sometimes change policy, um, you know, depending on the circumstance and all of that. But to be able to get, you know, changes that, prevent that for the next family that prevent that for the next individual is something that can really live on, you know, long after the case and something I think that you can really look back and, um, you know, I think about my area of law and, you know, I I feel really good about the work that we do, um, and helping families, you know, kind of get back on their feet, but that's not something that, you know, in our area of law, we're really able to do. Um, and so to, to be able to know that that's something that you guys are, are able to do and kind of focus on and, um, you know, to help try to prevent these things from helping it happening in the first place is, is really great to hear. And I think really important. You know, I think personal injury is a fascinating area of the law. And I'm surprised more students don't come out of school wanting to do it. You are truly helping individuals and families who are hurt. They've been hurt by a drunk driver or a car accident or somebody, you know, um, you know, you know, improperly built something, you know, and, and they are, they're hurt. And yes, there are frivolous cases, uh, but there are frivolous cases in all practice areas. But your firm does really great work in, you know, in helping these individuals. And I think you're selling yourself short when you say you guys don't make the change on the larger scale. I know you and your business partner are involved in Colorado Trial Lawyers Association. You guys are, you know, um, you know your business partner is uh, on the CU Law Alumni Board with me. You guys are making change in tons of different areas. Whether you can affect change with an insurance company you right, know, right. is a different story. But uh, I think you guys do have a strong commitment to the 
practice of protecting the citizens of Colorado. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess you're right. I should have clarified. You know, we we do, uh, you know, CTLA is a, is a powerful organization and we do get to affect change, you know, through the legislature and, and things like that. It was more in like in the settlement agreement, you know, I guess sometimes if you're suing a corporation, you could maybe get some change, but, but generally, you know, it's just not something that we can, you know, get, get an agreement, you know, for people to drive safer or something to that extent, but you're absolutely right. You know, and that is one of the, the more rewarding uh, aspects of, of my job. And I've also running, you know, your own firm because you get to decide the things that matter. You get to decide what kind of cases you're going to take. You get to decide how many of them you're going to take and you get to decide, you know, the type of lawyer that you're going to be in and, and kind of the things that are going to matter to you. Um, and that's been, at least in my experience, one of the most rewarding aspects of, of running my own firm was, um, look, there, there are a lot of different types of law that people can go into and, you know, everybody on all sides of almost all issues, uh, you know, deserves an attorney who's going to fight for them. Um, but for me, when I went to law school, I actually wanted to be a public defender uh, until I, I got some experience working for a personal injury law firm. Um, but for me, it was always important that I wanted to be able to, to sleep at night, you know, way more so than the money or anything like that. Like I wanted to do law that I felt good about, that I could talk about and be like, I am proud of, of what I do. Um, and that's something that I think owning your own firm uh, really enables you to do. And I think that's a good segue um, into, you know, this discussion. Um, when did you and your partner or I guess tell, kind of tell a story about how Rathod Muhammad Bai came to be. So I know you said you were working at a boutique firm for a little while. Um, what kind of inspired uh, UNQ to kind of start your own firm? You know, we just saw uh, that we could accept the challenge, that we wanted to bet on ourselves. Um, you know, we saw areas that we could improve on, um, do things differently. And we uh, took the plunge, you know, we took the risk. I wouldn't recommend this to uh, people starting firms, but we uh, both took out uh, a line of credit that was secured by our, our houses. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, you really bet on yourself. <laughs> you know, I, I pulled out my, I had a state retirement, yep. you know, I pulled it out and took a, I took out, I had $15,000 in my para <laughs> and uh, I took a $5,000 penalty. This is not financial advice, people. Uh, if you're listening, do not recommend, but yes. <laughs> and, uh, and Q maxed out all his credit cards and cash he could scrounge up. And I think we had $17,000 <laughs> and we got a office and they gave us a, uh, uh, a remodel credit we took a, and we used that to... Uh, uh, buy our computers. <laughs> and I, uh, I worked my way from, uh, undergrad all the way, uh, uh, all the way through undergrad as a carpenter during the summers and mm -hmm. a superintendent during school years. So I put the wood floors yeah. in and remodeled it and did it myself. Uh, I was actually in a trial and I was, uh, <laughs> I'd come back, uh, and, uh, my business partner, Cusier would have, uh, a box set up with a, a laptop on it and a folding chair. And I would prep my crosses for the next day, and then I'd go in lay <laughs> lay, lay, lay wood floors, and then uh, so our old office on Blake Street, wow. and then uh, uh, and then go to bed at like four in the morning, you know, wake up, shave, and shower in the sink, and go to go back to trial. <laughs> um, you know, we we did it on a shoestring uh, when we when we started, and that was a little over ten years ago. Wow, wow, yeah, ours, uh, you know, is interesting. We so we had uh, we had about ten thousand uh, dollars, and we had a website, 
And that was basically it. And those, for that first year, we didn't even have an office. Uh, we officed at my uh, dining room table in my uh, apartment. Uh, we met our clients at Starbucks and uh, McDonald's, um, sometimes in their houses. And we'd always sell it. We'd be like, listen, like, we're full service. We'll come to you. No need, no need to come to you know, our office. Like, we'll meet you anywhere you want. You, is there a Starbucks right next door to your house? Like, oh, we'll meet you there. Not a problem. Um, and it's, it, it, it takes grit. You know? it, takes, it takes hustle, I would say, in those beginning days. And it's certainly a, a, a little bit of high risk. But you know, it, it really is. I mean, to see where you guys have I'm now just learning where you guys started uh, to like where you guys are today is one of, if not the, you know, preeminent civil rights firm in, in the whole region um, and, and probably, you know, nationally. Um, it's it's crazy. You know, it's people under uh, I can't remember what that saying is. People overestimate what they can accomplish in one year, but underestimate what they can accomplish in five or something like that, you know. But it was fun. It was uh, when we were I remember there was a Colorado lawyer article in our first year that they did on us because, you know, we were a hundred percent minority owned law firm. Yeah, yeah. You know, we didn't look like any of the other law Breaking firms. Breaking all kinds of molds. We didn't <laughs> do the type of work that other law firms do. We're yeah. pretty much primarily a hundred percent contingency, you know, yeah. besides for a few cases here and there. And uh, they talked about in the article uh, the pulley system we had rigged up to get our trash off the back roof down to the dumpsters instead of having to walk it all the way around the whole block. Um, of course you guys do. And, uh, you know, so we had like a rope tied to a trash can that we'd throw <laughs> lower down off the building. Wow. And, uh, um, you know, it was fun. It was, it's still fun. You yeah. Know? And that, I think that's, you asked what's a day in the life yeah. of a civil rights attorney. I think at a day in the life at Rathod Mahabai, I think every attorney in our staff would say the same thing. It's a family. It's fun. Yeah. You know, we're passionate about what we do. Everyone's excited, you know, to do the work they do. And uh, everyone likes each other. And we really value quality of life. Right. Um, and I think if you have, you put an emphasis on quality of life and it allows you to focus on your cases, uh, have the health that you need, the mental health that you need to deal with these difficult situations and, uh, and, and have fun doing it, which makes you a better attorney. You know, and that's something that I've learned, you know, running our, our firm, we're at, uh, we just hired our eighth individual and, you know, happy employees are better employees and happy attorneys are better attorneys. And if you put an emphasis on everyone's happiness, then the work will come. And I think where a lot of businesses and a lot of law firms make the mistake is, is focusing on the work first. And obviously the work is super important, but if all you're looking for are results out of your employees, but in order to get them, you know, they are not sleeping and they're working weekends and they never get to see their family. Like they're either going to burn out or eventually the work product is going to suffer. And if you create a culture and a community uh, around a shared mission or a shared value system, um, you know, the work will be there, but also people will work with a smile on their face. They'll joke during the day, they'll laugh, you know, and it'll be like, you know, you got a, somebody's birthday party. You want to go leave at 3 PM to go hang out over here. Do it. Like do it. Absolutely. Like if you give people that type of, uh, uh, or nurture them in that way, then I think you see those dividends uh, down the road. And I think that's one of the cool things that we've realized over the years is that, uh, you know, and it's nothing against them because this is how it's been done for so long. Uh, it, a lot of firms just go about it the wrong way, in my view. They really, they really just focus on the, the wrong thing, like, you know, build this many hours or get all of this done and forget the human beings, you know, that they're dealing with. Yeah. And I think it, 
it, that really comes down a lot to also uh, your hiring decisions and yeah. hiring people who are self-motivated, hiring people who are committed to the mission and and want the mission to succeed, want our clients to succeed. And, and they naturally will put that first, you know, and then you kind of, when you, when you have that type of team, you know, we have 21 employees now. Wow. And, you know, when you have that type of team, regardless of whether it's, you know, your, your position is the intakes, which is so important to our firm. You Absolutely. Know, or it's the person who's drafting the, the briefs or putting the discovery together. Everyone's kind of committed and they understand where their role fits into the greater mission, the greater success of these cases. And uh, it's, I think we've been lucky to find really great people uh, to work with. What is the most challenging aspect of running your own firm? Like what, what's, what's the hardest part that you know you deal with? I think the hardest thing uh, when you uh, work for yourself is that you have simultaneously uh, the best and worst boss ever. Um, <laughs> and, and, and it's true. It's, you, you put a ton of pressure on yourself. Uh, when you start to get to, you know, you know, the numbers that we're at, it's a lot of pressure to make sure that everyone's getting paid, that payroll's done, the rent's paid, that, you know, you know, the systems that they need are there. And you can't lose sight of the legal work, though. You still got to work as a lawyer. Um, and that that's, can get a little, um, you know, I, there were periods early on. I think we're now at a position where, you know, our war chest is uh, big enough that we don't really have to cross that bridge anymore. Right. But early on, you know, there were definitely, <laughs> you know, times where we're like, are we going to make payroll? Oh, yeah. You know, and, you know, I remember about, you know, six years ago, seven years ago, we were within a month, within less than 30 days of not being able to make payroll. And we were fully maxed out in a massive line of credit by this point. And, and we, were, we were close. Now, we've you know, been able to, over the years, through time and experience and, right. and you know, sophistication in our work, been able to kind of level that out and build a very, very large, you know, I'll call it endowment. Yeah, fund, yeah. No, you guys have been super successful. I mean, absolutely. absolutely. But you have to keep that in there. You have yep. to be prepared to say, hey, I, you know, you know, I'm, this money is here to run the firm for two years in case I don't make any money for two years. Yep. Because uh, when you run a contingency law firm, you need to be able to front hundreds of thousands of dollars on each case. Um, and, you may not make any money for, you know, you know, year or two years at a time. Right. And that's the type of system you need to, over time, implement. It's very hard to do that on day one. Oh, super hard, man. I, I, yeah, we, we, we've been there. I've had those payroll scares, and then you start looking and you're like, all right, uh, you know, my partner Tim would be like, hey, 
all right, well, if we don't take a salary this month, then we can, then we should be good. And those first few months, man, and it always seemed to work out though. We'd always get right to the brink and then something would happen. Case would settle. We'd sign a new criminal client. Something would happen and we would, you know, be able to save it. But absolutely. I agree with you. You know, like each as you know, every time you're able to put a little bit more into that war chest or that savings account, you know, and now I look at it and I'm like, all right, even if everything goes wrong and we don't make $1, you know, for X amount of time, we're going to be fine. And it's, it's really rewarding to, to get there. And when um, you want to start doing the bigger and bigger cases, you got to recognize that they more and more money, more and more money. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars yep. in cost yep. to do these big cases. And you have to be able to front it. Yep. Our clients that we serve are, uh, uh, indigent, you know, don't have the ability uh, to pay their costs. Yep. And you've got to recognize that, that, hey, uh, you know, you may never see this money. Yep. And you still got to handle the case in the best interest of your client. Right. And that might mean settling and that might mean going to trial, but it it's not what's in your personal financial best interest. I've had cases where I've won on summary judgment and I've had a million dollars in attorney's fees and I've settled it for less than that million dollars because it's better off for my client. Right. Uh, and right. I take a bath. Yeah. And and that's the best thing for my case. That's the best thing for my client. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, it's been a great ride. Well, I like to uh, to end on on one question that I ask a lot of our guests, uh, and I know, and I wanted to specifically ask this to you because you're also super active at CU Law, uh, former chair, I believe, of the alumni association up there, and uh, you know, obviously, you teach at the law school, so also super active. But what is one thing? Because a lot of our listeners are law students. We do have a, quite a few young lawyers, but we also have a, a fairly large uh, law student following. Um, what is one thing you wish you knew? one L year that you know now, you know, what's one thing that you wish you could go back and just tell yourself like, Hey man, this is important. I think take a breath. Um, you know, take a pause regardless whether you are the number one student or the, the last student in your class, we all put too much pressure on ourselves. And, uh, I think if you take a step back, work hard and, kind of recognize that, hey, you know what? I may make mistakes, I may slip up, um, you know, but try to find something that you enjoy, that you're passionate about, uh, then you're gonna be successful. And and I think that goes for work too. Um, you know, don't take the big firm job just because it pays the most. Right. If you love it, and I have a lot of friends who are in big firms and they love it, that's amazing. But for me, it wasn't for me. Um, and you know, yes, I made more in 12 weeks at a big firm, uh, than I did in my first 12 months at the public defender's office. Uh, but I was much happier. Right. And the money will come. The right. money will come with time. Uh, if you're focused on being happy and finding something you're passionate about. Well, uh, Siddhartha, thank you so much for um, coming on the podcast today and, and talking about uh, what's really an interesting career and, and a super interesting and incredibly important area of law. Um, if any of our listeners uh, are interested in either civil rights law or running their own firm or anything kind of that we've talked about today and they want to grab coffee with you or something like that, uh, what's kind of the best way to, to get a hold of you? Is that like maybe an email or something like that? Yeah, shoot me an email. Um, I'm always happy to 
you know, talk with people and, you know, go get coffee or, you know, you know, there's, you know, a dozen attorneys in our office yeah. and there's, you know, great resources there, you know, from all different perspectives. So yeah, just reach out and uh, we love meeting new people in the community. Uh, we like lawyers. <laughs> um, uh, I think a lot of lawyers like lawyers, uh, but we like yeah. lawyers. Uh, they may not always admit it, but they we, do. <laughs> we have a lot of lawyers in our building, and uh, and we, we 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 do that because we enjoy being around them. We like how they think, and uh, and uh, and so yeah, always reach out. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much, man. It was always a pleasure, uh, and yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Get legal with it.